Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Before we begin, a little content warning. This episode discusses suicide and self-harm. If that's something that you're sensitive to, you might want to skip this one or just listen with care. Susanna Kaysen's memoir of her time as a patient at McLean Hospital, Girl Interrupted, starts with a meditation on how she, quote-unquote, crossed over into madness. She says, It is easy to slip into a parallel universe. There are so many of them, worlds of the insane, the criminal, the crippled, the dying, perhaps of the dead as well. These worlds exist alongside this world and resemble it, but are not in it. 25 years after her hospitalization, Kaysen hired a lawyer to help her get access to her medical records from McLean. In them, she discovered for the first time that she had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, a diagnosis that went through various iterations before being declared a personality disorder enshrined in the DSM-3 in 1980. Psychiatrists described borderline personality disorder, or BPD, in fairly broad terms, with symptoms including intense emotions, fear of abandonment, instability in relationships, impulsivity, distorted self-image, uncontrolled anger, and dissociation. The diagnosis is very commonly used. More than half of those diagnosed with mental illness have been diagnosed with BPD. But another statistic about BPD is perhaps more revealing. Between 70 and 77% of all people diagnosed with BPD are women. Kaysen explains that for some people, that crossing over happens suddenly. Her roommate at McLean came in swiftly and totally, she says, when a, quote, tidal wave of blackness broke over her head. The entire world was obliterated for a few minutes, end quote. But Kaysen says, quote, most people pass over incrementally, making a series of perforations in the membrane between here and there until an opening exists. And who can resist an opening? And in popular media, BPD has become linked in particular to beautiful, unstable, and ultimately dangerous white women. The most famous example is Glenn Close's character in the 1987 movie Fatal Attraction. In this movie, Michael Douglas's ca- character, Dan, has what he thinks is just a sexual fling with Glenn Close's character, Alexandra. But Alexandra becomes attached to Dan and becomes increasingly unstable and manipulative, faking a pregnancy and attempting suicide and attempts to get Dan to leave his wife and stay with her, then trying to punish him and his family by breaking into their home and famously killing and then boiling Dan's daughter's pet rabbit. 
Ultimately, the only way Alex is stopped is when Dan's wife, Beth, shoots her repeatedly in the chest. BPD is a troubled and troubling diagnosis, one that's been criticized and theorized and analyzed by feminists, disability scholars, and so-called borderlines themselves. In this episode of our Borders series, we'll explore the complicated history of a different kind of border, borderline personality disorder. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Hey, you. Yes, you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and to our amazing Patreon supporters, Lauren, Edward, Denise, Maddie, Maggie, Danielle, Lisa, Agnes, Iris, Maria, Colin, Susan, Peggy, and Jessica. Thank you for choosing to support us. We are nothing without you. Listeners, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. Feminist scholar Gloria Anzaldúa, in her semi-autobiographical book, Borderlands La Frontera, explored the strange reality of borderlands based on her experience growing up as a Chicana woman in the Texas-Mexico border. As cultures and peoples meet at the border, they bleed into each other, Anzaldúa argues, creating a new space, a borderland. Anzaldúa explains, quote, Borders are set up to define the places that are safe and unsafe. A borderland is a vague and undetermined place created by the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. It is a constant state of transition. The prohibited and forbidden are its inhabitants. Los atrofizados live here. The squint-eyed, the perverse, the queer, the troublesome, the mongrel, the mulatto, the half-breed, the half-dead. In short, those who cross over, pass over, or go through the confines of the normal. Anzaldúa was describing the realities of the actual Texas-Mexico border, but also the experience of those in the middle ground of other kinds of unseen borders, such as the borders of gender, sexuality, race, and ethnicity. As identities clash and conflict, the hegemonic, or the dominant, culture attempts to enforce adherence, pressuring or requiring people to meet cultural expectations, whether that's of language or behavior or dress or cuisine, whatever. Yet as another scholar, Janet Worth Couchin, summarizes, quote, these unnatural borders can never be fully enforced. Fragments of the suppressed identities remain in symptomatic traces or hauntings preserved in muted form in the psyches or bodies of border subjects. Numerous scholars have suggested that borderline personality disorder in which a patient is trapped in a no man's land between Freudian poles of insanity creates a similar borderland where definitions, identities, and demands clash. During the first half of the 20th century, the prevailing way of understanding mental illness was using Freudian psychoanalytic theory, which claimed that all mental illness fell into two poles, psychosis and neurosis. Psychosis, he argued, was when a patient had completely lost touch with reality, while neurosis was behavioral symptoms of environmental causes, repressed experiences and memories, for example. But in 1938, an American psychoanalyst named Adolf Stern described people who fell between these two poles as existing in a borderline state, exhibiting symptoms more severe than those with typical neuroses, but also not entirely psychotic. The term later came to indicate more than just a state of in-betweenness, but also a kind of instability and falseness of a person who exhibited a, quote, sham existence, people who are skilled at appearing normal, but who are really not. One psychoanalyst described borderline patients as, quote, stable in their instability. Patients who fell into this in-between state became known in psychiatric literature as borderlines themselves. So the literature refers to the people as borderlines. This term, 
is, of course, loaded. So I want to be clear from the very beginning in my choice of words. I'm following the precedent set by BPD scholars like Susan Kahn and Mary Lisa Johnson in continuing to use the term borderlines to describe BPD patients, but also following their precedent, we'll use this term consciously and critically. And we'll, you know, talk more about the name of the diagnosis and various positions on it as the episode goes on. And I'll just say that Mary Lisa Johnson, in in her um, very recent article about borderline personality disorder, has a great footnote explaining her decision to continue to use borderline personality that um, if you want to know more, I would highly recommend checking out. In the mid 20th century, psychoanalysts came to see the borderline as something entirely new. Whereas in decades past, psychoanalysts understood neuroses as stemming from people, mostly men, repressing their desires in order to adhere to the requirements of Victorian society. Mid-century borderline patients seemed more severe, more antisocial, and exhibiting all the worst traits associated with modern society. Post-war psychoanalysts now saw the neurosis-psychosis divide as, quote, the empty, grandiose narcissist on one side and the histrionic, manipulative, impulsive, and self-destructive borderline on the other. In our episode on psychopharmaceuticals, we talked about how psychiatry has long been plagued by an inherent crisis of legitimacy. Certain factions within the psychiatric profession were continually frustrated that they couldn't find clear-cut causes or cures for mental illnesses, especially as they watched the medical profession seeming to increasingly unravel medical mysteries and develop effective new treatments. The example we discussed in that episode was penicillin, which could serve as a kind of magic bullet against a broad spectrum of previously intractable diseases. Psychiatry desperately wanted its own magic bullet. While we were focused in that episode on medication, that same process, this attempt to make psychiatry more like medicine with exact diagnoses and a profession guided by similar scientific principles, the same process, though, manifests in other attempts to change the psychiatric profession. For decades, psychoanalysis, which relies on hours and hours of intensive probing of a patient's life history, dreams, and repressed memories, had reigned in the psychiatric profession. But the problem with psychoanalysis was it was highly individualized. Each patient was unique. And while psychoanalysts could develop theories of mental illness based on trends, each diagnosis was based on extensive individual analysis. In medicine, while a diagnosis might involve interviewing the patient, you know, to a certain extent, the symptoms, labs, tests, etc., all have to look the same, or at least virtually the same, from patient to patient in order to come up with a diagnosis. In other words, medical diagnoses are reproducible. And treatment options should also be roughly the same. For instance, two patients from totally different backgrounds and life experiences with chickenpox should both have itchy pockmarks, right? And they should both respond similarly to calamine lotion. Right. But of course, that's not the case when, uh, you know, that's not how these uh, diagnoses work within the psychoanalytic framework, right? So two patients might both be diagnosed with having neurosis, but each could have developed totally different kinds of neuroses for totally different reasons. We also previously discussed how not all psychiatric institutions and practitioners used psychoanalysis, especially psychiatric hospitals. But even those had no shared framework at all to guide diagnosis. So two different hospitals might use two different manuals or guides to help them determine a patient's diagnosis. In the United States, there were five different diagnostic classification systems in the 1950s, an asylum system, an army system, a navy system, a Department of Veterans Affairs system, and the American Prison Association system. There's one more layer here. Psychopharmaceuticals became increasingly popular for the general population at the same time as the rise of the American private health insurance system. And in order to get a health insurance company to pay for therapy or medication, you need to have a clear-cut diagnosis that can be easily coded for medical billing. 
the ambiguous, complex, and highly individualized diagnosis of psychoanalysis just would not work in that system. So in 1952, the American Psychiatric Association, or the APA, published the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM. The manual was based on the work of hundreds of psychiatrists, and while it created some standardization, it was still heavily based on psychoanalytic theory. The manual was lightly revised in 1968, so the DSM-2, and during the 1970s, the APA elected to work on yet another revision, which would become the DSM-3. They selected Robert Spitzer of the New York State Psychiatric Institute to head up the revision process. Two sort of asides here before I talk more about Spitzer. One, I did not know that there were these different manuals or guides to diagnosis. And I'm really fascinated that so many of them were around the military and prisons. And now I like really need to know more about that. Yeah. Margot Kennedy's book, The Straight State, uh, she doesn't specifically talk about these, the the different, uh, you know, modes of 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 diagnoses in the military but she does definitely go into the military and it's like policing of homosexuality uh which it was you know kind of using uh you know psychoanalysis and you know uh the pre-dsm and things like that to kind of uh basically keep veterans from getting their benefits and things like that so that oh that's yes. a yeah. good way to kind of see it it working in the practical sense yeah Definitely. Yeah. Um, somebody that I worked with at Nursing Clio, I think her name is um, Natalie. Uh, Natalie Shibley, I hope that I'm not butchering that, um, is working on, a, I know, a project that's very similar to that. Um, that is really fascinating about um, about sort of the pathologization of of um, soldiers and veterans especially when it had has to do with gender identity and sexuality but that's bonkers that like the army and the navy both had different ones like <laughs> had their own different yeah exactly um and, but there, there was one other thing that i needed to say about the dsm one so like i'm no expert on the the development of the dsm but one thing that stood out to me in the development of that the one that came out um in the 50s was that when it says that like it was the work of hundreds of psychiatrists like it was the work of like 218 or something because they tried to like interview or they 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 sent out requests for um assistance to like 575 or something psychiatrists and only 215 wrote wow. back so like it just se- it seems very impressive to say like it was the work of hundreds of psychiatrists but actually it was like just over 200 psychiatrists which isn't maybe all that representative so it just goes to show how like we we think of things like the dsm and and other you know documents medical documents or or government documents like that as being like somehow handed down by like mm-hmm. god like the tablets right but it was actually just the work of like 200 people and there's lots of other people who didn't right. agree with it so it just is it, it's very it's very telling i think and anyway. and with the impetus with the impetus of being to streamline diagnosis right not to serve patients but to to make patients Absolutely. fit into specific boxes so that they can be coded and processed correctly yeah. right right yeah yeah definitely so spitzer spitzer had been trained as a psychoanalyst but had moved away from psychoanalysis and instead had begun developing a system of structured interviewing where psychiatrists would ask all patients the same set of predetermined questions to land on a diagnosis. So he was sort of working towards this um, uh, system of of, um, regularizing and standardizing diagnosis before he even became um, the head of the DSM-3 project. Spitzer saw the revision of a, of the DSM-2 as an opportunity to move American psychiatry in that same direction. 
The APA wasn't particularly uh, engaged. They weren't particularly focused on the process. And so they sort of just gave Spitzer carte blanche for putting together a revision committee, which resulted in a task force that overwhelmingly believed the DSM needed to provide precise and objective diagnostic categories. After their first meeting in the fall of 1974, the committee agreed that a DSM-3, quote, should be evidence-based, use diagnostic criteria instead of general descriptions, and strive for maximal reliability, end quote. The committees were especially concerned with personality disorders, which the APA defines as, quote, ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving that makes a person different from other people, and, quote, a way of thinking, feeling, and behaving that deviates from the expectations of the culture, causes distress, or problems functioning, and lasts over time. Personality disorders posed a particular problem for the committee because of their amorphous and shifting nature and lack of, you know, quote-unquote, hard evidence. They stemmed from the psychoanalytic focus on the development of a person's character through lifelong conscious and unconscious experiences, and the conflict between the ego, superego, and the id. Psychoanalysts identified patterns in individual personality types and lumped them into a variety of personality disorders. These disorders were intrinsic to the individual. After all, they were part of who they were, right? And because of that, they were often associated with moral failure, personal weakness, and inferiority. Spitzer and his team were doubtful of personality disorders. They totally defied attempts at reproducibility. Uh, They were highly individualized, and they were typically intractable. But try as they might, Spitzer couldn't eliminate personality disorders entirely because according to historian Hannah Decker, personality disorders were clinically popular. Put simply, they were useful to therapists. This placed Spitzer and his team in a tough position, theoretically opposed to these ambiguous personality disorders, but also beholden to the practicing psychiatrists who found those character those categories useful in diagnosing patients. In the end, Spitzer and his team eliminated four personality disorders, cyclothymic, explosive, asthenic, and inadequate, and added five, schizotypal, narcissistic, borderline, avoidant, and dependent. And I should say the four that they eliminated were kind of absorbed into the new ones. They they didn't like the ideas behind them didn't go away. They kind of were just reorganized. They also organized the entire DSM-3 into what became the uh what was called the multi-axial system, where different kinds of issues were separated out into axes through which a patient could receive a multi-axial diagnosis. Clinical diagnoses are those needing immediate attention made up axis one, while personality disorders made up axis two. Axes three, four, and five dealt with medical and neurological factors, social and environmental factors, and assessments of distress and impairment. This allowed psychiatrists to give a clear, treatable, and acute diagnosis, so something like depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder that would be recognizable by health insurance companies and acceptable to those who were skeptical about psychoanalysis, while also allowing for the additional diagnosis of a permanent character-based personality disorder. And just as an aside, the multi-axial system was was very, very criticized. That's like a, a story for another day. Um, and so it was removed, actually, after many decades of, of kind of debate in the DSM-5, which came out in 2013. I want to detour away from the story of the DSM for just a moment to focus on the experience of being diagnosed with a personality disorder in this same time period. Susanna Kaysen's reflections on the diagnosis of a personality disorder, which are detailed toward the end of her memoir, Girl Interrupted, gives us some insight into the firsthand experience of learning that it is your personality, not your brain or your body or your chemical makeup or something like that, that's somehow defective. 
When she read her case files decades after she was first hospitalized at McLean Hospital, she struggled with each of the diagnostic criteria. For instance, one criteria was, quote, uncertainty about several life issues, such as self-image, sexual orientation, long-term goals, or career choice, types of friends or lovers to have. And so, understandably, Kaysen begins to pick apart her life choices. She, you know, she reflects like, is this the type of friend or lover I want to have? I ask myself this every time I meet someone new. So how can she tell what uncertainty is normal and what is pathological, right? How, how much of that thinking about, like, is this the kind of boyfriend I want is a normal thought process and how much of it is an inappropriate or pathological thought process? Yeah, that's an untenable situation. Exactly, right? She also contemplated the nature of a personality disorder in general. What did it mean to have a disordered personality? She writes, quote, if my diagnosis had been bipolar illness, for instance, the reaction to me and to this story would be slightly different. That's a chemical problem, you'd say to yourself. Manic depression, lithium, all that. I would be blameless somehow. She was still depressed later in her life. But, quote, my misery has been transformed into common unhappiness. So by Freud's definition, she said she had achieved mental health. She was discharged in in her paperwork that she gets later on, um, 25 years later. She um, finds out in her um, paperwork that 25 years later that she had been discharged as recovered. And so she kind of reflects on that. Had my personality crossed over that border, whatever and where it was, to resume life within the confines of normal Had I stopped arguing with my personality and learned to straddle the line between sane and insane, right? So, like, how do you recover when it's your personality, which is intrinsic to who you are, that is, quote unquote, disordered? So I wanted to include this section here while talking about, you know, the 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 process by which the term ends up in or the diagnosis ends up in the DSM, because there's a way in which kind of we can use this clinical language that makes it um, makes borderline sort of understandable in a yeah. way that it really just isn't it. it and that's what a lot of the, the scholarship on it deals with is like, what do we even make of this? How, how do you make sense of this? And it's, I think, particularly true of borderline personality disorder, but it could be, I think we, this, a similar conversation has probably been had about, all personality disorders because they are so it it is so unclear how much of it is pathological and how much of it is just part of who you are and so we'll, we'll come back to this towards the end but I think that this is just really important to have kind of in your mind as you go through the the rest of the episode. So Spitzer himself was a personality disorders skeptic, and he felt that if personality disorders were going to be added to the DSM-3, that they needed to meet at least some scientific standard. But finding that standard was challenging. His initial research uh, seemed to confirm his skepticism when he approached psychiatrist Aaron Beck, an expert on depression, about a potential depressive personality disorder. Beck responded that, quote, such a construct is so artificial and removed from observables that it is probably of little utility and even worse, it is probably a misleading fiction. But others insisted that personality disorders were real and important Borderline personality disorder was the most troublesome for the committee drafting the DSM-3. Psychiatrists in particular urged Spitzer to add borderline personality disorder, which one doctor insisted was a discrete diagnosable entity. Spitzer, the skeptic, felt that the term borderline was useless because what exactly does that mean, right? But nonetheless asked BPD supporters to make their case. Eventually, Spitzer and his team decided that BPD should be added, but only if it was better defined and had a better name. For years, Spitzer solicited suggestions from American psychiatrists about what to rename the disorder. Suggestions included schizoid personality disorder, unstable personality disorder, identity diffusion disorder, psychotic character disorder, 
but none of them stuck. In the end, the name Borderline Personality Disorder seemed to be the only thing that worked. Spitzer still hoped he could nail down a clear description of BPD that would fit better into the new evidence-based, scientifically credible DSM-3. But just as with his attempt to change the name, this proved impossible. The description of the disorder that ended up in the DSM-3, published in 1980, included phrases like, quote, there is instability in a variety of areas. No single feature is invariably present. Frequently, this disorder is accompanied by many features of other personality disorders. In many cases, more than one diagnosis is warranted, unquote. That's really not the clear-cut diagnosis that Spitzer had worked so hard for. And the ambiguity has remained. Thomas McGlashan, former director of the Yale Psychiatric Institute, wrote, quote, the most important thing about borderlines, they are more different than they are similar. Yet, he continued, they all share the ability to make, quote, the clinician's hair stand on end so that psychiatrists, quote, know when we have borderline patients in front of us, even though we don't know exactly what the illness is. Gosh, it's like, I'll know it when I see it kind of thing. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I thought. So, which is just so problematic. I mean, I'm no psychiatrist, but well, the idea that like, you just know it because your hair stands up on end like that. What a stigmatizing phrase that. But also, I think it goes to the futility of something like the DSM, right? Of trying to like fit people into these boxes. Now, yeah, I mean, that that is a really troubling statement there. Like, I'm not discounting that, but also like, okay, so really the scientific like, you know, uh, uh, benchmark here is is I know it when I see it kind of thing. But then, right. you know, it's it's just like this circular logic of, okay, well, then why are we trying to fit people into boxes? Oh, well, it's because we belong to this capitalist medical system that has to to, to have proper billing, right? So, so it's right. just like this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, could, we could go on and on, I guess. But anyhow. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So one major indicator that a psychiatrist will feel that chill in his spine that tells him he has a borderline in his office. What is it? The patient is a woman. As we mentioned before, the original idea of a borderline was a man tortured by his Victorian repression. But we also said that by the 1970s, between 70 and 77 percent of all of those diagnosed with BPD were women. So what caused the shift? After World War II, the diagnosis was understood less as one about Victorian repression and more about a pathological inability to adhere to modern society. The post-war borderline is marked by four general categories of distress. Unstable self-image, chaotic interpersonal relationships, emotional lability, and marked impulsivity. According to historian Susan Kahn's summary, borderline disorder, quote, describes a kind of empty self plagued by feelings of despair, loneliness, and a desperate fear of abandonment, problems that typically appear in early adulthood. The psyche defends against the resulting pain with a flood of unregulated, intense emotions, which include self-hatred anguish, a fierce and clinging love, venomous anger, acute depression, and suicidal wishes. Desperate to gain a sense of control, the sufferer engages in impulsive, self-injurious behaviors, ranging from suicide attempts or gestures to cutting and burning one's skin or high-risk behaviors, such as binge eating or spending, reckless driving, and sexual impulsivity defined as sex with multiple partners, with relative strangers, and without much forethought. Without much forethought. Oh, my Lord. So it's really not hard to pick apart those diagnostic criteria to show how they disproportionately apply to women. 
Self-harm, such as cutting and burning, are much more common in women, as is binge eating. Other signs of BPD aren't necessarily female behaviors, but are considered inappropriate or problematic only when women do them. For example, Susanna Kaysen writes in Girl Interrupted, how many girls do you think a 17-year-old boy would have to screw to earn the label compulsively promiscuous, Mm. right? Similarly, explosive anger is popularly understood as masculine and, and sometimes even a positive or an unavoidable part of masculinity, but considered inappropriate in women. And if you think about movies like Fatal Attraction, we also associate, quote unquote, intense emotion, clinging love and venomous anger with women. And and this is just like a kind of broad ranging thought that I had while I was recording this or while I was writing this. I was I'm like a true crime <laughs> junkie um, and I was. Um, watching the new series um, on, well, it's on Netflix now about um, Betty Broderick, Dear John, or um, Dirty John, Betty Broderick. And I just was just recognizing so much of what I was reading in the story of Betty Broderick. That's not to diagnose her, but just to say that um, I think that we we have these associations between things like intense emotion, clinging love and venomous anger with a particular kind of beautiful and deadly woman um, who takes out her revenge through violence on a man who done her wrong. Right. Like I was thinking of the case of Clara Harris who um, murdered her husband by running over him three times when she caught him at a luxury hotel with his lover in 2002. You got to back up and go forward again and make sure you did it. Exactly. Uh, Betty Broderick, who harassed and eventually murdered her ex-husband and his new wife in 1989. But then there have also been theories floated using kind of a retrospective diagnosis, which is, I think, very problematic, but nonetheless compelling to a lot of people about famous, beautiful women like Princess Diana and Marilyn Monroe as both having potentially borderline personality disorder. So there's there's some connection that we have, and we'll continue to see it through the rest of the this episode, um, between beautiful, alluring, sexy, um, compelling, but also dangerous women. They're witches. Right, yeah. They would just make this into one of our witch episodes. There you go. <laughs> So, yeah, so historians, feminist scholars, and disability activists all argue that it's not a coincidence that borderline personality became an overwhelmingly female diagnosis in the same decades marked by both second wave feminism and the rise of the new right. As Susan Kahn writes, quote, this shift in meaning occurred largely in the 1970s and 80s, decades when radical feminists fought to legitimate women's anger and sexual expression while simultaneously asserting a right to protection from physical or sexual abuse. So in quick succession, disgruntled conservatives clapped back, decrying the breakdown of American morality, the degradation of the family, and the dangers posed by feminism. The diagnosis largely applied to women that pathologized anger, sexuality, and impulsivity clearly seemed like an attempt to punish and control women who pushed back against traditional gender boundaries. Susan Kahn is clear that she isn't arguing that this was a conscious process, but rather that within this larger, this larger cultural context, borderlines had traits that were, quote, unsettling and discomforting, which influenced psychiatric trends. If society at large hates and fears angry, sexually active women, some psychiatrists will reflect that. After all, psychiatrists are part of society, too. As Susanna Kaysen's psychiatrist told her, borderline is, quote, what they call people whose lifestyles bother them. And we know this happens. Again, you should listen to or revisit our episode on psychopharmaceuticals because we talked a lot in that episode about how cultural ideas of femininity influenced drug development and marketing. So borderline personality disorder remained a messy, unclear diagnosis, one that was tied up with cultural ideas about femininity. 
But psychiatrists, eager to shore up diagnostic categories, often placed any instability in the disorder on patients themselves. Borderlines were untrustworthy, wearing masks and creating the image that they were well-adjusted just to trick their therapists. In Robert Knight's 1953 essay describing the borderline state, he wrote that therapists might need to interview a patient many times because, quote, in spite of the patient's automatic attempts at concealment, the presence of pathology of a psychotic degree will usually manifest itself on the experienced clinician. Borderlines put up a, quote, deceptive, superficially conventional, although neurotic, front, end quote, that therapists needed to pierce. As Susan Kahn argues, this is in line with much longer trends in psychiatry that cast so-called crazy women as seductive tricksters who could present a normal face in public that masked deep, dangerous mental illnesses and defectiveness. Before the diagnosis of BPD formed, such women were labeled psychopaths who were unstable, impulsive, and self-obsessed, but also charming and enticing. It also calls to mind the fear-mongering of doctors and eugenicists who warned men about beautiful women who harbored hidden genetic flaws or sexually transmitted diseases. The borderline's supposed tendency to hide their symptoms was what really created any ambiguity that existed in the diagnosis. I can't, I mean, and I just keep, can't stop thinking about even going back further, like thinking about Sharon Block's work uh, about kind of women as vixen and uh, temptress, right? Uh, Right. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's an eight to, uh, Absolutely. Of of women and women's sexuality and women's wiles, right? So the ability to mask was also to blame for the tendency towards counter towards countertransference in therapists treating borderline patients. Countertransference is when a therapist becomes emotionally entangled with their patient. In the 1980s, several psychiatrists wrote articles describing the unique threat posed by the borderline patient who would tempt the psychiatrist into such an entanglement. One wrote that borderline patients, quote, get under the analyst's skin with an uncanny talent that enables the patient to understand the analyst. Other psychiatrists wrote, quote, when you're treating borderlines, I don't care how good you are, they force whatever part of you is chaotic and crazy to get mixed up in their problems. In a particularly controversial essay in 1989, psychiatrist Thomas Cathiel wrote that borderline patients, quote, possess the ability, as it were, to seduce, provoke, or invite therapists into boundary violations of their own in the countertransference. I was just going to interrupt there to say that one of the reasons that that essay is controversial, and I, I wish that I had been able to delve more deeply into it, but that essay is all about sexual relationships between therapists and patients. And Guthiel is like, well, it's because of it's because of borderlines like it's the way that borderlines are it's part of the sickness it's because of the feminine wiles of the borderline right right? it's not the fault of the therapist who's crossing over you know ethical lines um it's the borderline which kind of pulls the therapist into its part of the disorder really gross so another uh Psychiatrists suggested that borderlines discuss their struggles with therapists, quote, in a basically coquettish, seductive manner, while the enthralled therapist struggles to match the priceless material with brilliantly penetrating interpretations. Oh, my God, this is so gross. Uh, yet, I know. <laughs> yet another wrote that borderline patients, quote, glitter and strike like a cobra. So these men were basically writing to warn other psychiatrists, uh, I guess we can insert male psychiatrists there probably, about the dangers mm-hmm. of borderline patients specifically, building the perception of female borderlines as dangerous, seductive sirens. But moreover, their arguments placed the blame for any inappropriate relationships between therapist and patient on the borderline herself. 
Susanna Kaysen captures this in an interesting way in a chapter in her memoir, Girl Interrupted, called The Shadow of the Real, which brings to mind the theory that borderlines were hiding parts of their personality, a shadow self. In it, her therapist suddenly declares to her, quote, you want to sleep with me? She writes, sallow, bald early, and with pale pouches under his eyes. He wasn't anyone I wanted to sleep with. Later, her therapist gets angry when she makes an apparently accurate observation about his three cars, a station wagon, a sedan, and a sports car, how they represent his ego, superego, and id. It's the therapist, not the patient, who brings up sex and gets irritated at analysis, but it becomes evidence of Susanna's borderline personality disorder diagnosis. The dangerous allure of the borderline is captured in a memoir by a psychiatrist named uh, Anthony Walker called, tellingly, The Siren's Dance, Loving Someone with Borderline Personality Disorder. And uh, listener, this is one where, like, I did it so you don't have to. Like, like, really, I took one for the team in reading this book. In the book, Walker describes coming upon a woman named Michelle on his rounds as a medical student in the 1980s. And, you know, interesting that this is also a product of the 80s. Many of those psychiatrists talking about countertransference, that those were published in the 80s. Like, this is very much a a conversation that's happening after the DSM-3 comes out in the 1980s, which I think is Mm -hmm. is interesting. Um, Michelle, this woman that he he comes upon in the hospital, had just been revived and had her stomach pumped after a suicide attempt. He, While he pities her at first and describes her in grotesque terms, he talks about how she's puffy and with black from the charcoal still on her lips. When she smiles at him, he becomes entranced. Quote, her smile was her lure. I was instantly seduced by it. He pursues her after she's discharged, and he makes sure in the text to explain to you that she was never really his patient, so it's not bad. It's not like it's not inappropriate. Um, And they eventually marry. He describes her as hypersexual, uh, inappropriate and impulsive, a kind of whirlwind who gasp in one chapter. It's revealed that she once had a girlfriend. Mm. She's bisexual. Oh, my God. And um, she, she sometimes sends food back How in dare restaurants. She? I, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm not kidding. Those are both, like, used as evidence of, like, her crazy personality. He says that being with Michelle was, quote, like adding a couple dashes of Tabasco to fresh homemade vanilla ice cream. Yes. Which, like, I don't quite follow because that sounds gross. Like, it doesn't sound Exciting. And also, he's like really <laughs> calling himself bad. boring, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. He describes over and over again his own obsession with her, but places the blame for that entirely on her and her illness. It was her personality that created the obsession right. in him. At the end of the book, he writes that most relationships with borderlines aren't like his and Michelle's and that the book isn't meant to be a cautionary tale. But in reality, the entire book, like all of those articles by psychiatrists in the 1980s, is meant to be a warning to others to avoid the scary, dangerous, crazy siren. God, this is so gross. So as we've described, the diagnosis has been consistently criticized by feminists, uh, disability activists, and importantly, borderlines themselves. Patients, understandably, have had complicated feelings about the diagnosis. Susan Kahn analyzed several memoirs written by people diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, finding that patients fell all over the map in terms of their relationship to the diagnosis. Most express at least some ambivalence about it. Stacey Pershaw, for instance, writes that she was, quote, definitely a borderline, but that she also hates the term. Others embraced the label, relieved to have something that captured and described their painful symptoms in a meaningful way. Rachel Ryland, on the other hand, wrote in her memoir that her diagnosis actually made her worse because it more or less gave her instructions on how to self-harm. 
and Susanna Kaysen expressed skepticism about the diagnosis in general, writing that it's, quote, accurate but not profound, and speculates that many of the symptoms of the disorder seem like fairly typical adolescent behavior. Yeah, I I really love that phrase from Susanna Kazin, accurate but not profound. Like it's describing symptoms that she did feel. And in some ways, you know, she writes about being like amazed that other people did some of the same self-harming techniques that she used and, and discovering like, oh, I'm not alone. Like this was I thought I invented this. But at the same time, that description isn't necessarily adding anything for her or helping her to cope with those symptoms, right? Like giving it a name isn't actually doing much for her. Borderline personality disorder is a diagnosis that has been extensively theorized, especially by feminist and disability theorists. Theory is not exactly the easiest thing to translate into audience-friendly, easy listening. And it's not something that we often delve into all that deeply here for, you know, for exactly (laughs) that reason. But I do think that it's important to discuss it in this episode. Borderline is a troubled and troubling diagnosis, and we can't really understand the nuances of it responsibly, I don't think, without at least acknowledging the different ways that scholars have worked to make sense of it. Now, in this episode, we've leaned heavily on the work of historian Susan Kahn, who is a mentor and a good friend of all four of us. We just had a barbecue with her the other day. <laughs> Susan uses Gloria Anzaldúa's ideas about border spaces, mm-hmm. where identities meet, conflict, and generate new identities to analyze the borders of borderline personality disorder. It can be tempting for scholars to see those borderlands as, quote, frontiers of opportunity where new identities can be generated and people can find freedom not available in other places or groups. Right. It's a it's a new a new place uh, that allows for new things in that sense. Is borderline personality disorder actually disabling? Or is it just another way of being that society punishes? At the same time, you could also take the idea that mental illness is socially constructed. So, you know, Foucault cameo there and apply it to borderline personality disorder to say, you know, well, it's just another diagnosis like hysteria that was invented to punish and control women. And you could reject it entirely. Uh, And in fact, we've talked about the anti-psychiatry movement before, specifically about psychiatrist Thomas Zaz and his theory that all mental illness is fundamentally a myth created by professionals and authority figures to control unruly members of society. So could we understand BPD as a tool for control created by male psychiatrists to label, punish, and control female patients that violate the gender roles and don't respond well to their expert therapies? Um, Ultimately, we're asking, is borderline personality disorder real? Well, at the risk of falling into a dig cliche, it's complicated, (laughs) It is real in that psychiatric professionals have identified a set of experiences and symptoms that come together that make it in a way that make it recognizable, right? But Susan argues that that still doesn't make it real in the way that Robert Spitzer and the DSM-3 tried to make it. Therapists and clinicians don't agree on what it is. They struggle to describe it, and they often try to use a you-know-it-when-you-see-it explanation of the disorder. Is it real? Yes, and also no, right? The borderland as no man's land. There's also danger in flattening all mental illness into misogynistic attempts by the patriarchy to punish and control women. Feminist scholar Mary Lisa Johnson points out that several feminist scholars have turned borderline personality disorder into almost a metaphor through which they can explore the generalized pain of being a woman in a patriarchal society. But she counters that this, quote, conflates women with extreme symptoms and women with non-disordered levels of distress. Women with borderline personality disorder are not just intensified women or women who happen to be more traumatized or more repressed. For example, Johnson describes a a psychotherapist who criticized the idea that women with BPD are damaged creatures. 
This seems totally spot on. But Johnson pushes back. Quote, is it possible, she asks, that some people, people for whom the BPD diagnosis feels accurate and useful in identifying the dynamics of previously unnamed forms of discomfort and dysfunction, may desire access to a term like damage as a validating description of past experience and current states? In other words, Johnson worries that the idea that BPD is just a tool of the patriarchy is actually too dismissive of the very real and very painful experiences of women diagnosed with the disorder. In a way similar to how white feminism fails to take seriously the unique needs of women of color, Johnson says that this neurotypical feminism fails to consider the unique needs of psychiatrically disabled women. Instead, she proposes neuroqueer feminism, an intersectional theory that acknowledges neurodivergence, destigmatizes gendered neurodivergence, and values the experience and expertise of neurodivergent people. You may have heard of the terms neurodiversity or non-neurotypical used in relation to autism. And as you probably know or have guessed, these are terms from disability theory that try to destigmatize autism and make space for minds that work differently from what has been deemed typical by the dominant culture. So the term neuroqueer expands on that by drawing on queer theory, which explains departures from social norms as queerness diverts from compulsory heterosexuality. Neuroqueer, she says, means to be unapologetically neurodivergent. Neuroqueer feminism then fights back against stigma and shame while also allowing borderlines to claim their own experience as a disability and welcomes neurodiversity. So that was a lot, (laughs) (laughs) to say the least. And of of, of course, we need to point out that we really only unpacked two different scholarly views on BPD there. But that little dive into the theoretical approaches to understanding borderline personality disorder really illustrates just how complex the diagnosis is. Is it real? What does real mean? Either way, as both uh, Susan Kahn and Mary Lisa Johnson and the many memoirists that we mentioned throughout make it clear, borderlines do experience real pain. As several scholars have described it, quote, borderlines have no emotional skin or emotional clotting mechanism, meaning that they feel with extreme intensity and can't stop. So how do we make space for those who find themselves in this borderland and chafe at the label? How do we make space for those who embrace the label and find it useful? And how do we continue to interrogate the patriarchal use of this pain to pathologize, isolate, and punish while still turning with tenderness towards borderlines? We don't have clear answers to these questions because they're all questions scholars such as Mary Lisa Johnson and Susan Kahn are still debating and will continue to debate. And well, maybe we'll never have clear answers. In the borderlands, theories and experiences meet, merge and conflict. So it seems likely that we'll always be discussing and debating. Now, normally I like to end with a more sort of definitive statement, but it's hard to do that with an episode like this. Instead, I think I want to reiterate Mary Lisa Johnson's encouragement that we, quote, turn with tenderness towards borderline and those who live under the diagnosis. I think that's a I think that's a good suggestion. Thanks so much for listening to this uh, very theory heavy episode. I will try to. Uh, I'll try to rein myself in next time. You can follow us on Twitter at dig underscore history. You can find us on Facebook. You can join our dig history pod squad on Facebook. If you like memes and history camaraderie, Um, And of course, um, as Elizabeth said at the beginning, you can become a patron of the show if you want to support us and everything that we do. Um, You know, we're doing all of this research and recording um, totally, uh, you know, without totally without any institutional support. So every um, penny that that you all very generously give to us makes such a huge difference. And don't rein yourself in next time, Sarah. I learned a lot from this episode. I'm sure our listeners did, too. So. 
Well, good. And yeah, if you have thoughts about any of this stuff, please let us know. I, we love discussing episodes with you. So, all right. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Non-disordered, non-disordered levels of distress. Distress. Borderlines put up a, quote, deceptive, supervenially conventional. Oh, my God. Borderline is what? Well, right. The borderland. The is borderline is borderline per decades when radical feminists fought to legitimate a, a women's anger and sexual expression. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> As Susan Kahn writes. OK. Blah. The experience and expertise of neuro neuro is a diagnosis that has been extensively theorized that blah, blah, blah. Psychiatrist Thomas Gathiel? No clue. Okay. Here we go. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Two differently scholarly views on BPD. Wait, you said differently. Oh, sorry. Specifically about psychiatrist Thomas Saz. Zaz, yes. And I'm sorry, that should say psychiatrist, not psychiatrist. Thank you for choosing us to patronize. Patronize (laughs) is a a weird word there. (laughs) It is.